All right, so when it gets to Thanksgiving, i got to ask, what piece do you usually grab for at Thanksgiving? Which one's your, your, your preference? Pumpkin, apple, anybody here? Pecan, 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 your pecan. Do you, even when it's cold? Like heated pecan pie. Yes, yeah, yeah. Anything else? I did, what's that? Chocolate pie? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was a, especially when I was younger, I was a big lemon meringue fan, although you don't really have that at, at Thanksgiving so much. But I as I, I just, as we were talking about pie, I just had this flashback memory when I was growing up a pastor's kid. And back in Iowa, they used to have a, a in Iowa, they don't call them sloppy joes, they call them made rights. Anyone ever heard of it called a made right before instead of a sloppy joe? Made right. Yeah, I know, weird Iowa thing. I don't, I don't know. Um, but uh, we used to have a made right meal and then there'd be pie you get made rights and pie I, I don't know but as a kid and then we got all the leftovers right so just like every got i just got a sample like basically all the leftovers went to pastor's house next door so i got to eat just every single there's so many different good kinds of pie although i found out recently there's a good friend of ours who he doesn't like pie i don't know if we can be friends anymore because it's a weird it's a weird thing to not like pie if you don't like pie we can still be friends but tonight, obviously, and if you're reading the screen, you can see that the piece we're really talking about is not just a piece of, of, of pie, as great as that's going to be tomorrow. There, there, there's something to Thanksgiving that it's not just something that is just good for us. Oh, we should give thanks sometimes that we're supposed to do it. There's really a gift that comes to us when we give thanks and when we celebrate what God has done and who God is. There's really a piece we get to take hold of. And so tonight, our lesson is about the peace of thanksgiving. The lesson we have is Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, to get us going with the thoughts of this lesson, we're going to watch the very beginning of the Bible Project's video about the book of Philippians to get our mind around where Paul is going with this letter. Paul's letter to the Philippians. The church in Philippi was the first Jesus community Paul started in Eastern Europe, and that story is told in Acts chapter 16. Philippi was a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia. It was full of retired soldiers, and it was known for its patriotic nationalism. And so there Paul faced resistance when he was announcing Jesus as the true king of the world. And after Paul moved on from there, those who became followers of Jesus continued to suffer resistance and even persecution. But they remained a vibrant community faithful to the way of Jesus. Paul sent this letter from one of his many imprisonments, and for a very practical reason. The Philippians had sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to take a financial gift to Paul to support him in prison. And Paul sent back this letter with Epaphroditus to say thank you and to do a whole lot more. The design of this letter doesn't develop one single idea from beginning to end like many of Paul's other letters. Rather, Paul has arranged a series of short, reflective essays or vignettes, and they all revolve around the center of gravity in this letter, which is a poem in chapter 2. It artistically retells the story of the Messiah's incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation. And then in each of these vignettes, Paul will take up key words or ideas from that poem to show how living as a Christian means seeing your own story as a lived expression of Jesus' story. Right, so the letter is really pointing us to...
this story, which really, that's what the Christian life is about, is we are Christians. You are in Christ. Being brought to faith in Christ means that you're in Christ. You're in the Messiah. That's who you are, your identity, your hope. Everything is about being connected to him, being united with him. Now, partnering with him, you are united with God because you are in Christ Jesus, the Messiah. And there's a line in the beginning of Philippians that really just says it as clearly and simply as possible as, as you could really get. In chapter 1, verse 21, the beginning of that verse, Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. That's what life is. Now, he also goes on to say to die is gain because he's talking about the hope that we have and the eternity that's ahead of us. But the way we look at this life that we are living, the life that you have, it is in Christ. And that's what this whole letter is about, seeing your life in Christ. Our lesson comes from the back end of this letter, from chapter 4. And we're in the section now where Paul is encouraging people to see themselves in, in, in Christ, but also really encouraging us to be strong and to stand firm in Christ. I'll underline a couple of parts of the verses that, that, that lead up to our sermon lesson. Uh, we won't read through all of them again. We already read them in that, that background lesson. But see that line where it says, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. So he's encouraged you to stand firm. And there's a couple things or a few things really that are part of standing firm. In verse 4, he says twice, rejoice. Rejoicing in the Lord is directly connected to standing firm in the Lord. If you want to be, you know, sometimes it's sometimes Christians seem like really gloom and glum, which is totally not what we're supposed to I, I, if you, I don't know how you can be really embracing the gospel and be really glum. I mean, like, the gospel is so joyful, and it's beautiful. And, and if you're going to stand against the pressures of the world, you've got to rejoice in it. God calls us to rejoice, and that's part of standing firm. He also talks about having being gentle and having gentleness. That's partly because in this section, he's encouraging people to work together. So if you're going to stand firm in the faith, you also got to be gentle with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then recognize that the Lord is near, that he is, is close. Our lesson is also part of this encouragement. And our lesson speaks to some of the things that are really hard for us to stand firm under. And so that's part of why our lesson comes now in this section. Philippians. It starts off, it says, do not be anxious about anything. I got to tell you that uh, that line about do not be anxious is a big part of why I decided, I think for this Thanksgiving, we should talk about this. Because just recently I was talking to someone and they were sharing how like, they're just saying, I'm just, I'm so anxious about this and I'm anxious about that. And it reminded me that recently, or maybe it's, I, should, I don't know, maybe recent is the right word, but over the last year and a half or so, I've really, I've really come to recognize that anxiety is a lot more prevalent in my life than I realized before. And I think part of the reason why I recognize it is because I help a lot of people now through their anxiety. And so as I talk to them about their anxiety, then I realize like, oh, I didn't really connect this with anxiety before, but this is anxiety. Like this is anxiety showing up in my life or this is anxiety. I've also noticed it more the last year and a half or so because just with all the things going on in the world, COVID and other things and tragedies nearby and Waukesha things, you know, there's just, there's, there's, there's been a lot of anxiety prompting things this last year and a half. Not that it started then. There's been anxiety prompting things before then. But I don't know. I feel like for me it's ramped up. And I don't think I'm the only one. I think when I talk to, when I talk to people, it seems like this is a common thing where people have felt a lot of anxiety. 
which is part of why I wanted to go to this, this lesson tonight. And, and I don't know about you, but the way the original language, the word picture in the Greek language, in the original language here, is really helpful for me in expressing and understanding what anxiety is. The, the word anxiety, it literally, or anxious, it literally means to be parted out or to be disunited. So it's the idea of your brain going off in all these different parts. Instead of being in one united piece, it's in several different pieces going all over the place. And I don't know about you, but that, that, that hits for me because I think of like how when you get especially anxious, what happens in your mind? Well, what if this happens? And then what about this thing? And then what about this? And well, if that happens here, and, but this thing happened here, your brain goes off in all of these different directions and then the pressure is there and you just get parted out. That's what a lot of anxiety is when you start worrying about, thinking about all of these different things. And Paul in this letter here, he says, do not be anxious. You don't have to be parted out about anything. That's a pretty big, don't be anxious, don't be part of about anything. That's kind of a big call from Paul to don't be anxious. Because I don't know about you, but when you feel anxious, it's not typically I can just be like, okay, Nate, stop being anxious. It doesn't just, oh, you should stop doing that. You know, it's something, it takes more than that. And thankfully, he, he gives us more than that. And as, as he gives us the peace, the peace of Thanksgiving, as we look at what he gives us, do want to make a little, a little little side note is when he gives us these directives when you think about dealing with times when you're anxious recognize that there are other things that we can and should do alongside these words and what i mean by that is sometimes people look at say well the bible says do this and you're not going to be anxious so therefore you don't have to do things like take an anti-anxiety medicine or you don't have to go to a counselor to a therapist or whatever no just like if you get a cancer diagnosis and you want to go to the doctor to get your help with your cancer, in addition to doing these things. These things go together, right? You get the medical help, and you do the spiritual help. Same sort of thing with anxiety. Do whatever you need to do along with these verses. This is where Paul is directing us spiritually, okay? And where he directs us to is to prayer. He says, in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now notice he uses two words, prayer and petition. He, he, he doesn't just say, well, prayer. There's two separate ideas here and both have a bit of a different concept to it. When he says prayer, that word literally, it means to, to, to basically to, to express a, a desire, to bring in a, a desire in the direction of someone. And specifically here in the direction of God. So bring your desire in the direction of God. So whatever it is that's on your heart, Whatever it is that you're desiring, bring before him. And now one of the, the amazing things about, about prayer in, in the Bible, when you bring your desire before God, is that sometimes God changes your desire, actually. Sometimes he, he actually takes, and in, in the process of prayer, and maybe you have this sometimes, you're praying, and, okay, God, your will be done. And as you say that, you start to realize maybe something different is what God has in mind. God, when you bring your, your desires to him, can actually change your heart and change your desires. The idea with prayer is simply that you're bringing your desires toward the Lord, and then letting the Lord work with them. The second one, petition, there's a picture here. It literally means to cling to. I, I just can't help but think about like a child who maybe runs up and clings to like their parent or their grandparent. Would you please, can you please, I, can, I, I really need this. Can you give me this? Can I please have more ice cream with my pie or whatever? You know, like that's probably going to happen in my house or, 
you know, my, my dad's house tomorrow. Like as we, you know, or more, whatever, whatever you want to grab. That whole clinging to and then hanging on and asking for something. These are the two pictures. The one is of bringing whatever's on your heart, your desires to God. Bring them towards God for him to do something with them, with those desires. And then clinging to him as you ask him, as you present your request. Present your request to God where you are bringing whatever's on your heart to him and where you hang on and ask. And as you do it, do it with thanksgiving. The word thanksgiving in the original language in, in, in the New Testament being written in Greek is a really beautiful word. It's actually a word that you probably have heard before and maybe not recognize that you have heard it before. Uh, it's the word eucharisto. So in the Roman Catholic Church, they typically refer, often refer to the Lord's Supper as what? The, the Eucharist. It's this word. The word just means thanksgiving. It's, it's this Greek word. And interestingly enough, when we were visiting our family back in Greece uh, a couple of years ago, I didn't catch it at first because they pronounce it a little bit differently now, but they actually, this is still the same word they, they use to say thank you in Greece today. Except for in Greece today, they say efkaristo. For some reason, they changed the EU sound to like an F sound, so it's efkaristo. That's how they say thank you. So they still use this same word today, and it's a beautiful word that literally means good grace or good favor. It's a word where you are acknowledging that something good is happening here. That something good is happening as a result of somebody's grace, which is really, that word is, is favor. The word grace is the idea of, of how that you, you favor someone or you delight in someone, so you give them a gift. So the word grace is really acknowledging what you're, what you're doing is you're receiving a gift. So the word, when you see good grace and thank you, you're acknowledging that you are getting good gifts from God, that you have a good favor from God, that he has a good delight in you. And so therefore, God is doing something good for you. So Paul is telling you to, to bring whatever's on your heart, those desires, bring them to the Lord, hang on tight to him, and do it with thanksgiving, where you are recognizing that he is doing something good for you. And that he has this favor and delight, and delights enough to give you a good gift. When you bring whatever's on your heart, to God, when you hang on tight to him with your requests, and when you do it acknowledging that he is doing something good, that he has good grace, good favor for you, this leads into the peace of thanksgiving. Because look what he says next. He says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. We've used this video somewhat recently here uh, at our fort location uh, that talked about peace, but it's just good for us to get a reminder about what Peace, biblically, is all about. The word peace is common in... The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. 
It's like Job, who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom. And his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, My peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. It takes a lot of work. The amazing thing about the peace of God that we're talking about here is that this is a peace that comes from God, which means God has done the work when it comes to our relationship with him. Now, sin had broken that relationship. Sin got in the way of us being with God. But God did the work to restore what was broken. We've done different things that, that break our lives and break this world. And what Jesus did is Jesus took every broken thing we've ever done, every single sin, on himself, and then he went to the cross and took the justice for that sins right there so all the justice would be paid, so all of our sin would die with him when he died on a cross, and then he rose again to show that life had been restored to us and given again to us with God. He made it so that you are at peace with God, and peace then is wholeness. Wholeness has been restored between you and your creator, between you and the author of life. And so when you come before God with your needs and you bring what's on your heart and you come before God and you hang on to him and you recognize his good, 
grace, what you're doing is recognizing that you don't have to be parted out about all these things because God Himself has made you whole. And God Himself provides everything you need, every good and gracious gift for you. That the author of life, if you, if you have a whole relationship with the God who is the author and giver of life in this world and life for eternity, then you can be at peace. Your mind can be in one piece instead of parted out over all these different things. Because you are now restored, wholly restored with your creator, the author and giver of life. And it's Jesus who makes this happen. It's Jesus who does this. It's Jesus who gives you the peace of thanksgiving. He's the one who makes you restored with your father, with the author and giver of life, wholly restored so that you don't have to be thinking about all these different things, but that so your mind can be in one peace with him. And this peace that we're given, there's a couple of really powerful words in this verse. The one, first one is transcends. Literally, that word means, means it, it's, it's authority. It's about ranking higher than something else. So here's, here's the really, like, whatever it is that, that tends to stress you out, whatever it is that, that goes on your mind or on your heart, the peace of God has more authority than it does. Yeah, you might have this thing that you're concerned about, but you have a whole relationship with God, the author of life, and that has more authority than this thing. You might be stressed out about this, but you have a full relationship with God, and therefore that has more authority than this. Whatever it is that can be on your mind and your heart, the peace of God has more authority. It has more power. It reigns supreme over whatever else is going on. And not only does it reign supreme, but it stands guard over your heart and in your mind. That peace that comes from God, knowing that you are holy with him, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ. Which is what your whole life is about, right? That's what this whole letter is about. Living life in Christ Jesus. When you live life in Christ Jesus, you can take all these times that your mind gets parted out. And right now might be one of those times for you where it's parted out. Sometimes Thanksgiving can be hard. Like, okay, I'm supposed to go say thanks, but you got all these different things going on. You can take all these pieces, whatever it is that's on your mind, on your heart, and you can bring the desires of your heart to the Lord and lay them before him. And you can hang on tight and acknowledge his peace that he has given you. That he has given you good and gracious gifts. And that you are at peace and at wholeness in him. And that peace is supreme. That peace will guard and it will keep you in Christ. This last week, or so actually it was when I was sitting out in the woods hunting last weekend. When you don't see a deer, is it still hunting or is it just sitting in the woods? I don't know. I didn't see a deer for a while. I did eventually see a deer. Um, but uh, when I was sitting out in the woods last week, last weekend, I was thinking about being in Christ and giving thanks. And also a time where Jesus gave thanks really stuck out to me. In 1 Corinthians... Paul is recounting what we call the words of institution at the Lord's Supper, right? 
And we're told that he says those words. He said, we're, we're told when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He gives thanks as he institutes the supper that is all about the fact that he is going to be broken and die on a cross, horribly die for our sins. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, I thank you, Lord, and then he breaks the bread. That progression is really striking to think that he would give thanks for the meal that's all about him dying. But what is giving thanks about? It's, it's, it's acknowledging the good gifts of God, right? And Jesus knew, Jesus knew that what he was going to do on that cross was the greatest gift for us. And Jesus knew that his father would not abandon his soul to the grave, but would raise him again from the dead. And Jesus knew that God was doing the greatest thing and would bring the greatest gift out of that. And so, as you prepare to give thanks tonight and tomorrow, and as you prepare to give thanks to someone who is in Christ, we can give thanks because we have a whole relationship with God, and you can maybe see all the different ways that God has provided. But what if we also join in Jesus, and maybe there's something ahead of you that is stressing you out that might be hard, something that maybe will be really difficult, but God promises that he will work good things out of anything. And no matter what is ahead of you, you have eternity with Christ because of what he did by dying and rising again. No matter what is ahead of you, he's going to use it to serve a good purpose for his glory and your good. And so you can, tonight, tomorrow, in all the clear blessings, recognize God's good gifts. But maybe even in the ways that you might break a bit going forward. Recognize God's good gift because you are in Christ and he's given you the greatest gift and he thanked God for it. He recognized what God was doing when that supper was instituted and when he would die on the cross. And now you and I, we are in Christ. We have the greatest gift. We have Christ. And now we know we can acknowledge God's good gifts. We can give thanks in everything, which is why tonight, we don't typically have the Lord's Supper on Thanksgiving Eve, but I figured before we eat a piece of pumpkin pie or apple pie, sorry there's no pecan pie or chocolate pie, but before we eat a piece of that pie, it only made sense for us to have a piece of the true body of Christ and a piece or really a cup full of the blood of Christ because we are in Christ and together with him, we get to th give thanks to God. That's what this is. We get to celebrate the Eucharist, the, the giving of thanks with Christ. That is the peace of Thanksgiving. Uncle Jeff, have you seen the last piece of pumpkin pie? What did it look like? Come on, you're like 50 years old. You should know how pie looks. Yeah, 50? Oh, come on, can you even count to 50? Uncle Jeff, I got some questions for you.
Yes? Why do we have turkey on Thanksgiving? Because when cooked properly, every four or five years, it's delicious. Okay, so then why would we have green bean casserole then? Touche. Why do I have a whip plate? McDonald's is fine. Ah, clearly it's not stopping you. Why did mom have a full plate of stuffing when she's on keto? Because carbs are comforting. Why can't I just lick my plate? If I'm in charge of the dishes, I actually encourage that. Why are there no unicorns in the Bible? Why am I not allowed to sit close to the TV? Why does water taste different in Nana's house? Why isn't Grandpa allowed to have salt? Why is gravy brown? Why am I not allowed to touch the air freshener? Why does Cooper pick his nose so much? Why does Mom call me by my sister's name? Why do we plant all the time? Why can't I eat grass? Why can't I sit in Dad's chair? Why is Sunday school called Sunday school? Why do cows have four stomachs? Why do parents whisper when they get mad? Why do old people write in person? Why do babies have no teeth? Why is baseball so boring? Why do fish have no lungs? Why is Thanksgiving before Christmas? I know why. You know why what? I know why Thanksgiving comes right before Christmas. <sighs> okay. Tell me. Why does Thanksgiving come right before Christmas? Because it reminds us to be thankful that God sent us Jesus. <laughs> I never thought of that before. <laughs> I like that. All right. Now. Hit me with some of that whipped cream, girl. Oh, that's good. How do you know my face?